um, as we start this sermon, I want to ask you this question. Um, have you ever heard the phrase, um, what would you do if you knew that you could not fail? I don't know if you've ever heard that, that phrase. Maybe like you were at some like sales conference or like inspirational thing and somebody said that. Or, or maybe like somebody was I, I, some, at some point asked you, what would you do if you knew that like money wasn't an option? Right, and, and I've tried. Honestly, I, I like did some research trying to figure out like where these phrases came up, with like who came up with, and could not find anything because they're so widely used that, that there's just way too much information on Google. But I, I find these questions fascinating because a lot of times we're asked those questions trying to get at something, right? And it's that maybe for for some of us, I would argue for for most of us, a lot of times um, th there are things that we would do that we want to do, but we're not doing because we're afraid. Maybe it's we're afraid that, that we're going to fail at them. Maybe we're afraid that things are going to go the right way that we expect. Maybe we're afraid that, you know, that we lose our savings and, you know, uh, then what do we do now, right? Like there's this idea, which I find fascinating, particularly because so, so much of like the, the, the American, you know, vision and understanding of success, like you can really do anything you set your mind to. And, and a lot of times we have then on the other side all these things that we want to do, but we don't do uh, because of fear, right? Like we ask ourselves, what? What if something went wrong? I, I would argue that this past year has exacerbated that, right? Because if you ever ask yourself the question, how bad could it get? Well, we found out how bad it could get, right? And, and, so, and, and the problem with that is that I think that it actually affects how we look at the future. If I'm honest, it affects how I look at the future, right? Like now you're starting a business and, you know, up until... 2019, what if a global pandemic breaks out and we can't, you know, like be, be indoors for like a year? Wasn't part of the equation. Guess what? Now it is, right? Like, like there's things that, that, that now kind of like what we've seen happen, they were like holds us back a little bit. I would argue that, 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 that the, how we think about the future and what we think is going to happen affects how we live, affects the decisions we make, affects uh, the risks that, that, that we take, that the, the posture, for a, to say in, in, our, in our way, uh, the posture that we have towards the future affects how we face life. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, do you uh, face the future with a posture of fear? Or, or do you face the future with a posture of hope? And how you answer that question is actually going to affect the decisions that you make. And what, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because what concerns me is that what if there, there's many of us, maybe in this room, that, that there's dreams within us, that there's hopes within us, there's things that we would love to see, things that we would love to try, things that we would love to do. And, and there's fear that's holding us back, and what if that's kind of like trapping us into a life of, of regret, maybe even a life, a life of mediocrity, that we can get past because we're afraid. Now, what does this have to do with the one-hit wonder series? Because this idea is actually related to one of my favorite, if not my favorite, one-hit wonder obscure little story that you find in the Old Testament. When Chad reached out and, and invited me to be a part of the series, this is like the first uh, story that came to my mind. So if you have a Bible, open it in the book of 1 Samuel, or if you, you know, 
you want to follow on the screen, you can do that as well. This is 1 Samuel chapter 14, okay? And I want to give you like a little bit of background before I jump into the story. This is in the time when Saul is king of Israel. So before David, Saul, first king of Israel. Most of that, of the time of Saul's reign is spent into this war with the neighboring nation of, of, of the Philistines. And so many of us are like, if you know the story that makes David famous, right? Like uh, David killing Goliath, he was a Philistine. They spent most of Saul's reign fighting with this nation. And this particular passage comes in the middle of this protracted long battle that's been going on for a few chapters. And here is where we find ourselves. So 1 Samuel chapter 14, I'm going to start reading on, on verse 1. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come. Let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phineas. You don't need to remember this name. You're cool. The son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Boses and the other called Sena. One cliff stood to the north towards Megmash, the other to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving whether by many or by few, do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said, go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are, not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them show themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the the hands of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what is this story about? I think that this is a story about a predisposition of our hearts to move forward in faith. How the story start? You know, like they are kind of like camping, and if you kind of like read the whole thing, they're kind of like waiting each other out. They've been waiting each other for several weeks and kind of like getting ready to, to fight. And if you understand the context of the story, what you see is that kind of like the, the Israelites are, are trying to not go into battle. And, and they know that the Philistine is a larger army. They have more weapons. We'll get to that in a minute. And the Israelites are kind of like trying to like hide out as long as they can before they have to fight. Jonathan, though, is different than that. Because Jonathan isn't waiting out trying to, you know, delay the inevitable as much as he can. Jonathan was, wants to get on with it. 
And Jonathan is ready to fight. And he's like, come, let's go to the outpost. Right? We get to, down to verse 6. He says, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Which, by the way, that's like Bible speak for like cussing people out. Like if you're not a cousin man, that's what they will usually tell you. Uncircumcised men, right? Perhaps the Lord will act in your behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now, a few things uh, that I want you to understand about this sense, right? Like, uh, back at that time, if you read through, like, most of the Old Testament, particularly, like, the conquest narratives between Israel and other nations, you'll see that most of the time, before going into battle, whether it was a judge or whether it was some general or whether it was some king, they would try to consult God before going into battle. Most of the time, it was because... Because they were understaffed and underarmed and they were always kind of like on the disadvantage and they would say, well, we need to make sure that God is kind of like going to fight with us or, or we are not going to battle. And, you know, which is not too different that when we ask the question, right? Like, what would you do if you could not fail? We want God to kind of like say, yes, I'm going to make things happen exactly the way you want them to. But Jonathan doesn't do that, does he? Because in this story... Jonathan is ready to go. He's the type of person that would rather ask for forgiveness than for permission. He's kind of like the bull in the shop. He just wants to go and get into the fight. There, there's a, a pastor in, in Los Angeles called Elm McManus. And he wrote a book that he mentions this story. And he calls Jonathan's approach to life an advanced mentality. And, and the idea that he wants to get us is that most of us live our lives waiting for permission. We want God to call us into something. But Jonathan doesn't do that. Jonathan knows, you know, that the Philistines are the enemy. Jonathan knows that the people of Israel, like, their, their livelihood, their, their very lives are at stake. And he knows that what he need, that's all he needs to know to go into battle. It's not only that he has an advanced mentality. It's that he has an advanced mentality in spite of adverse circumstances. And we know that because of several things in the story, right? What's the first thing? That, 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 that you know, Jonathan is outnumbered, right? It's two of them against like 20 other guys. Not only that, but if you read the chapter before, you're going to find out that this particular incident comes, you know, in the middle of this long protracted battle with the Philistines. And what happens here is that because the Philistines are kind of like winning the battle, they're like the dominant nation, they're kind of like taking all of the weapons from most of the people in Israel. Let me read you kind of like the section right before. This is First Samuel chapter 13. It says, Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow, their plow points, maddox, axes, and sickles sharpened. The prize was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and maddox and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goats. So on the day of the battle, listen to this, on the day of the battle, not a soldier which Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. They Basically, only Jonathan has a weapon when all of the other people have weapons. Now, not only that, but what also do we read in the story? That, 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 that Jonathan is kind of like going into this sort of like valley, and there's just two cliffs above them. And the Philistine army is in one of those cliffs. The, if we've learned anything from Star Wars, 
is that you never underestimate the person that has a high ground, right? Like that's how you end up with your, you know, limbs taken off and then you become a dark lord of the Sith. Anyway, my point is, okay, my understanding is that some, some of you are from like the military because the closest to the military base. If you are outnumbered and if only you have a weapon and the 20 other guys have a weapon, and if you have the tactical disadvantage because you're on the low ground, they're on the high ground, do you go into battle? Right? So, so and, and this is, and, and, and it's fascinating how much Jonathan is just kind of like willing to go into this battle and, and, and wanting to pick up a fight. And, and when I read a story like that, my first thing is to think, this guy is either like really arrogant or really stupid. And actually, chances are it's kind of like a little bit of both, right? And what's fascinating to me is that when you read the story, what you realize is that, you know, Jonathan doesn't just act irrationally. There's actually a source for the boldness that Jonathan shows in this passage. And we find that on verse 6. What does Jonathan say? Jonathan says, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving whether by many or by few. The rationale behind Jonathan being willing and, you know, deciding to pick up this fight is that he believed that there was a possibility that God might intervene. Now, even that, he only thinks of it as a possibility, right? Jonathan doesn't assume that God is going to actually do something for him. But he kind of believes that like, God is more likely than not. And it's on that hunch, it's on that hope, that he actually moves forward in faith and gains this great victory for the people of Israel. What was the secret to Jonathan's approach to life? What I share with you this morning is that I think that Jonathan lived his life with a posture of hope. Remember the question that I asked you at the beginning, right? What would you do if you knew you could not fail? The problem with that question is that we can't know, right? We can't know because we don't have a time machine. We don't know the future. And the problem is that many of us, we don't take the step. We don't make the decision. We don't take the risk because we're afraid of this. What if things don't work out the way I want them to work out? And fundamentally, what that is, it's a posture of, of fear, right? It's, it's fear in the face of uncertainty, in the face of not knowing what the future is. Our assumption is that the worst thing could happen, that, that the bad thing could happen. And Jonathan actually lives his life the opposite of that, right? Jonathan lives his life with a posture of hope. And for a lot of us, that sounds great, and it also sounds unattainable. Because we think that Jonathan has to have this special kind of faith. Or that Jonathan has to have this special like direct line to God that like allows him to live like that. And we can imagine that being the case for us. And, and what I want to show you is that it's actually the opposite. What I want to show you is that Jonathan has as many doubts as you might have about what to do. What does verse 6 say? Perhaps 
the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps. You see, Jonathan isn't sure about what's going to happen. Jonathan has doubts. It could work out. It could not work out. And I'm telling you that because I think that that's the place to start because so many of us are, are putting this impossible burden of certainty and proof on ourselves and on God in order to take action and step out in faith and obeying what God is calling us to do. And the reason is because somebody along the way told us that doubt was a bad thing. That if you had doubts, that meant that you weren't sure and only people that are certain can achieve things. And, and what I want to show you is actually that's not true at all. Doubt doesn't mean that something bad could happen. All that doubt means is that we don't know what's going to happen. What if we started looking at that a different way? I think that, that Jonathan looks at doubt a different way. You see, what we want is certainty. And, and, and a lot of times what happens is that we trick ourselves into thinking, if I was just a little bit more certain about this step, then I would do it. I would take the step. We want a 100% guarantee from God that what we want to happen is going to happen. We want an angel to show up with like a triple form, notarized, signed by St. Peter, with like, you know, like a little clip of what's going to happen before we obey God, before we take the step. A few years ago, I was uh, kind of like doing a tour of this church in Boston, and we're talking with the, with the senior pastor of the church, and he's kind of like sharing with us just for a minute, and he's saying how, you know, the way that they operate, they never were like 100% sure of anything they were going to do. It's just like, to be honest with you, like when I planted this church, I was 60% sure it was going to work out. And then he's looking at me, he's like, you know, when I got married, 80% sure, right? And, 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 and it was like very, like, very matter of fact how, how he was sharing it. But this is the thing. I, I hate to break it to you, but certainty is a binary state, okay? What, what that means is that you cannot be like 50% certain or anything. Either you're certain or you're not. If you're 60% certain of something, that means you're 40% uncertain, which means what? You're 100% uncertain. If you're 99% certain of something, it means that you're 1% uncertain, which means that you're 100% uncertain. Certainty is impossible to attain because we don't know the future. We don't have a time machine. What, which all that means is that we're always going to be uncertain. We're always going to have doubts. So, so the move that you need to make, like the move that a lot of us need to make, is not a move from doubt into certainty, because that's certainly not what, what no pun intended, what Jonathan does. Jonathan doesn't move from doubt to certainty. Jonathan moves from fear to hope. This is what I say, you hope. Hope is not necessarily, you know, not having any doubts of whether God will come through or not. Hope is moving forward, believing that he might. You see, hope is just like fear in this way. That both hope and fear look at the future with uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. Now, unlike fear, though, fear always thinks that the worst thing is going to happen. You know what hope does? 
Hope looks at the future as endless possibility. Perhaps, perhaps, the Lord will act on our behalf because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So, so the question for us this morning is how do we make that move from fear to hope? And I actually think that the line is in, the answer to that is in the next line of verse 6. So it says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. And then what does he say? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. You see, Jonathan is not stupid. Jonathan is not arrogant. Jonathan doesn't want to pick up a fight with the Philistines because he's so confident of his own fighting capabilities or because he's delusional. Jonathan has his posture of hope about the future because of who he believes God to be. To so first in a different way, Jonathan has faith in God. Now, this is the thing, it's not this, when I say faith in God, I'm not talking about this idea of like this abstract idea of faith that you believe that God exists. Jonathan believes very specific things about God that we see in this passage. The first one is this, Jonathan believes in God's power. What does he say? He says, nothing can hinder the Lord. Jonathan believes that God has the power to help. Have you ever been in a situation where you were about to take the step and you weren't sure if things were going to work out? You're not confident and actually like if, if things don't work out, you're in trouble, but somebody was with you. Maybe you were the kid that like run up his mouth at school because your brother that was like three years older than you was like in a football team and weighed already like 250 pounds. So somebody went to mess with you. They had to mess with your brother and, and that made you like, you know, a, a little jerk at school and that's probably not a good example, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, a, little different, a different example. Um, uh, my, my wife and I, we just bought a house, and, you know, really happy. It's our first house. And um, I, I don't know if you've tried to buy a house in the market right now. It's not easy. It's kind of crazy that like you really have to, like, waive any sort of, like, you know, contingencies, no inspections, no appraisals, no nothing. Like you sign your life away, you sign your kid's life away, you sign your dog's life away, and maybe they'll pick you for a house, right? We've been looking for months. It's February. It's been really, really tough, really difficult. And we finally, you know, like we're about to make this offer and we have to like wave all these contingencies. And what that meant was that it really exposed us financially. Like something went wrong that we couldn't think about. We could be in, in real trouble. But if one in the house was the only way we were going to do it. So we came up to, you know, my wife and I had to, to both of our parents. And we said, hey, guys, like, listen, we're going to do this. We have the money and everything. But, no, we're taking all these risks. And we're kind of, like, just asking, like, if something were to go wrong, like, you guys got us, right? <laughs> and, of course, because they're our parents and they love us, we're like, yes, of course, we got you. Make the offer. You're fine. Something happens. We'll figure it out. And having that knowledge that somebody has a power that you don't have in the moment that you're exposed that if something goes wrong, you're protected, gives you a different type of confidence. That's the confidence that Jonathan has. Jonathan has confidence in God's power. The second thing, though, is this, that Jonathan has faith in God's character. Okay? What does the next line say? It says, nothing can hinder the Lord from what? From saving Jonathan believes that God's predisposition, it's a predisposition to save. 
Yet he's about to take this step of faith. And he believes God has the power to do something. But it's only God has the power to do something. God has the will to do something. That I'm taking this step and I'm taking this step. And that God fundamentally loves me. And that no matter what happens, it's not going to change that fact. And I feel like a lot of us, it's not like we don't believe in God's power. We believe in God's power. We just don't believe that God is with us. For a number of reasons. Half of them are because we, that we know that God knows how we live sometimes. And how we yell at our kids last night. And the fight that we had with our spouse. And there's deep within us is shame that because of my sins and my flaws and my mistakes, God's just waiting at the opportunity to mess me over. And if I take the step, God's going to, hey, hi, I got you. Now I'm going to destroy your life as a punishment. We don't believe in God's character. Have you, I don't know if you remember the story of the, um, the parable of the talents. There's like, you know, Jesus tells this parable that there's a guy gives like these different servants a group, a, a number of talents, and the first two like invest them and multiply them, and God rewards him. And, and then the last uh, servant is very interesting. This is in Matthew 25. He says, he, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping what you did not sow and, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And if you know the rest of the story, the master said, well, because you thought about that me, then kind of like punish and I'm taking the talent away and giving it to somebody else. What, what stopped the servant from acting wasn't just laziness. It wasn't just negligence. A lot of times we preach that, that passage like that. What stopped the servant from, I, from, from acting the right way, from being a good steward, is that he had the wrong assumptions about the master's character. Many of us make the wrong assumptions about God's character. We believe that God's fundamentally out to get us. And we're afraid to take the step because that's where God is going to kind of like show his hand and hurt us. And that's not what Jonathan believes. Jonathan believes that God, that this God, that this guy is in the salvation business. That this guy is in the rescuing business. That this guy is in the mercy business. This guy is in the grace business. And that leads him to act. The final thing is this. Jonathan aligns himself with God's purposes. If you read the rest of the story, there's a moment in the story where Jonathan actually kind of like sets almost like a moment for, for, for to kind of like get confirmation from God. And I don't think that if you read the story, you know, like they, they, he, he gets up to where the Philistines are. And he says, like, if they told us, if he tell us to wait for us, then we're going to wait. But if he tell us, like, come up to, to us, then that's our cue that, that we have to go. And they go and, and they say, come up to us. And that's how they fight. And I think that what's going on in that story is that, um, that Jonathan is creating this moment for, for, for God to say, this is what I want. Jonathan doesn't want confirmation whether he's going to win the battle, Jonathan wants confirmation that this is what God wants. And, and, and if you read the rest of the story, what you see is this. Jonathan winning this battle, killing these 20 men, kind of like sparks a whole bigger battle where Israel wins. Like somebody comes to look for Jonathan and they see that they're fighting and when everybody kind of like shows up to help Jonathan, everybody else is dead. So they kind of like keep chasing after the rest of the Philistines and they win this win battle. And towards the end of the chapter, there is this line on, on 1 Samuel 14, verse 23, that says this. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. 
You see, uh, it would be very easy to take a sermon like this and turn it into some sort of like self-actualization or self, self-help thing, right? That you want success, that you want to like move ahead in your career, so I'm kind of like giving you permission to like apply for the promotion or start like your lemonade stand or, or you know, whatever business you, you, you want to start and it's about you, right? And like buy the house, do, do, do the thing. And, and I'm not saying those things are wrong, by the way. Like the, you, maybe that's, that's how, like the next step that we do you, but this, this story is not about that. The story is a story about a nation that's almost like on the brink of extinction, that's in danger from this other country that has been like pillaging them and killing them. And, and God uses the faith of this one man not to just deliver a victory for Jonathan's sake, but to deliver a victory for the sake of the whole nation. Why I think that this message is important is because I believe that God fundamentally acts through his people in the world. That there are things that God wants to do through you, not for your sake, but for the sake of others. That there are businesses, that there are churches, that there are nonprofits, that there are families that are just waiting within you to be born. And that fear holds us back from taking this step. That fear holds us back from being obedient. That fear holds us back from taking the risk. And we are dying to do it, but we want certainty. We end the angel with the triple notarized form from St. Peter. And what God wants is for you to have a little bit of faith in him. And the question is, would our lives look any different if we started thinking like Jonathan? Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf for nothing can hinder God from saving, whether by many or by few. What would you do, not if you know that you could fail or not fail? What would you do, not if you knew that money was an option? What would you do if you believe that perhaps the Lord would act on your behalf? That's a question for us. A few years ago, when I was uh, starting uh, the church, I was doing this residency, and I needed to raise my support. And I'll be honest, I'm terrible at raising money. I don't like asking people for money. And uh, we were like several hundred dollars short of like our monthly support. Then like the deadline for me to raise that was kind of like getting there. And it was like our livelihood. And I was really worried. And I remember this weekend that I'm just like breaking down before God. And like, God, I don't know what, how to do this. I don't know what's going to happen. You have to help me. And Literally, like, that evening, two things happened. I get a check in the mail exactly for the amount of money I was short for that month. And a friend of mine from my old church moves into the area, and out of nowhere sends me a text message saying, hey, we're going to the area. Can I take you out for dinner? And we go out, and he said, hey, we're in this area. I want to know you that when you start this church, we want to be there for you. We want to support you and be part of this. Great well, weekend, just thankful to God. Monday comes along, and I'm praying again. And again, I'm miserable and having a panic attack and worried that everything's falling apart. And, you know, I'm like, well, yes, this money came in for this month. I have 11 more months of support to raise. What are we going to do, right? 
And, and in the middle of that, uh, I get a phone call from the person that had sent that check. So I, like, take the call and I just thank him for, th- thank him for this. And they say, hey, by the way, I just wanted to make sure, like, is this the right address to send this monthly? Because we want to continue supporting you. I, you know, think, yeah, yes, of course, give her the details, hang out the phone, and just, like, breaking down. And I um, go back to my prayer time that I interrupted from, for the call. And, and at that point, I was kind of like reading through the Book of Common Prayer, like if you grew up like Episcopalian Anglican, it's kind of like this, this side of readings from the Bible that you do every day. And one of them is, is this thing called the Benedictus, which is kind of like this, uh, the, the song of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. When John the Baptist is born, he kinda, he's been mute for months, and finally he starts speaking, and he literally breaks out into this song. And, 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 and the way that Book of Common Prayer works, you read the same thing for weeks. So for weeks, I've been reading the same passage really mean nothing to me. And I get on that particular day to this one line in the passage on Luke chapter 1, verse 78, and he says this, in the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us. And what Zechariah is talking about in that particular song is this idea that the people of Israel have been in exile, they've been back to their home, and now they have the Roman emperor occupying them and they've kind of like been living this long night. But now, John the Baptist had been born to announce and to prepare the way of the Lord, which meant that the Messiah was coming surely right behind him. So he's singing this song and he's saying, we've been living into this long night, but in the tender compassion of our God, the sun is coming up. And what I felt like God told to me out of that story was, and I'm dramatizing God, but I thought that this is what God was saying. He's like, Joel, you know what your problem is? And I'm like, yes, Lord, what's my problem? He's like, your problem is that you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. That you live your life worried when things are going to go wrong. Which is true, honestly, it's part of like an immigrant experience. I'm from Ecuador, like when you live an immigrant, you're always afraid that like things aren't going to work out for you somehow. And I, and, and I kind of like feel like God saying that to me. Says, but look at these people. These people have lived, you know, in terrible circumstances for hundreds of years, waiting for the Messiah to come. And nothing has worked out. They have this occupying, you know, army in their land. And yet they look towards the future with hope, believing that the sun is going to come up. And they don't even know, they don't fully understand Jesus. They don't fully understand the Messiah. They don't fully understand that Jesus is going to come and literally die for their sins and rise from the dead and defeat the powers of evil and sin and death and bring new life in the world. They have no idea. And they can believe that somehow God is going to do something good. And you know. You know this. You know that Jesus came. You know that Jesus lived and died. And rose again. We don't need any more proof of God's power because we have the resurrection. And if God defeated death, God can do anything. We don't need any more proof of God's character because God has shown his love for us by sending his son. And we also don't need any more clarification on God's purposes. Because we know that God wants to send his message into the world and heal and redeem and save. Friends, we have everything that we need to take the next step.
and my invitation to you today is that you would believe it, not that you wouldn't have any doubts because you're always going to have them, but that you would turn those, those, those negative doubts, that fear, into the positive doubt of hope, of the endless possibility of the future that God can bring. And that whatever your dream is, whatever the thing that God has placed in your heart is, that you would know this, that perhaps, perhaps, that perhaps the Lord will act on your behalf. Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Let's pray. Dear God, we uh, come before you today. Truly overwhelmed by by the love that you've already shown in Jesus Christ. That we don't need any more evidence of your love. That we don't need any more evidence of your power because you've defeated the grave. And our prayer this morning is that in believing and having faith in that love, in that power, that we'll be obedient and take the steps that you're calling us to take. Because perhaps you will act on our behalf because nothing, nothing can stop you from saving. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray.